CD3 It was hard to see Mr Tulip's eyes because of the certain puffiness, probably caused by too much enthusiasm for things in bags. Your brain on drugs is a terrible sight, but Mr Tulip was living proof of the fact that so was your brain on a cocktail of horse liniment, sherbet and powdered water retention pills. The bags had also possibly caused the general blotchiness and the thick veins that stood out on his forehead, but Mr Tulip was in any case the kind of heavy-set man who is on the verge of bursting out of his clothes and, despite his artistic inclinations, projected the image of a would-be wrestler who had failed the intelligence test. If his body was a temple, it was one of those strange ones where people did odd things to animals in the basement, and if he watched what he ate, it was only to see it wriggle. Several of the chairs wondered, not if they were doing the right thing, since that was indisputable, but whether they were doing it with the right people. Mr Tulip, after all, wasn't a man you'd want to see standing too close to a naked flame. "'When will you be ready?' said a chair. "'How is your protégé today?' "'We think Tuesday morning would be a good time,' said Mr Pin. "'By then he'll be as good as he's going to get.' "'And there will be no deaths involved,' said a chair. "'This is important.' "'Mr. Tulip will be as gentle as a lamb,' said Mr. Pin. Unseen gazes avoided the sight of Mr. Tulip, who had chosen this moment to suck up his nose a large quantity of slab. "'Ah, uh, yes,' said a chair. "'His lordship is not to be harmed any more than is strictly necessary. Veterinary dead would be more dangerous than veterinary alive. "'And at all costs there must be no trouble with the watch.' "'Yeah, we know about the watch,' said Mr. Pin.' Mr. Slant told us. Commander Vimes is running a very efficient watch. No problem, said Mr. Pin. And it employs a werewolf. White powder fountained into the air. Mr. Pin had to slap his colleague on the back. A ing werewolf? Are you ing crazy? Uh, why does your partner keep saying ing, Mr. Pin? said a chair. You must be out of your ing minds, Tulip growled. A speech impediment said Pin. A werewolf? Thank you for telling us. Thank you very much. They're worse than vampires when they're on the trail. You do know that, do you? You were recommended to us as men of resource. Expensive men of resource, said Mr. Pin. A chair sighed. There are seldom any other kind. Very well, very well. Mr. Slant will discuss this with you. Yeah, but they've got a sense of smell that you wouldn't believe, Mr. Tulip went on. Money's no use to a ing dead man. Are there any other surprises? said Mr. Pin. You've got bright watchmen and one of them's a werewolf. Anything else? They've got trolls too. Oh, yes, several. And dwarfs and zombies. In a watch? What kind of city are you running here? We are not running the city, said a chair. But we care about the way it is going, said another. Ah, said Mr. Pin. Right. I remember. You are concerned citizens. He knew about concerned citizens. Wherever they were, they all spoke the same private language, where traditional values meant hang someone. He did not have a problem with this, broadly speaking, but it never hurt to understand your employer. You could have got someone else, he said. You've got a guild of assassins here. A chair made a sucking sound between its teeth. The trouble with the city at present it said, is that a number of otherwise intelligent people find the status quo convenient. 
even though it will undoubtedly ruin the city. Ah, said Mr. Pin, they are unconcerned citizens. Precisely, gentlemen. There's a lot of them? The chair ignored this. We look forward to seeing you again, gentlemen, tomorrow night, when I trust you will announce your readiness. Good evening. The circle of chairs was silent for a while after the new firm had left. Then a black-clad figure entered soundlessly through the big doors, approached the light, nodded and hurried away. "'They're well outside the building,' said a chair. "'What ghastly people! We should have used the Assassin's Guild, though. Ha! They've done rather well out of Vetinari. In any case, we do not want him dead. However—' "'It occurs to me that we may eventually have a job for the Guild later on.' "'Quite so. When our friends have safely left the city, "'the roads can be so dangerous at this time of year.' "'No, gentlemen, we will stick to our plan. "'The one called Charlie will be kept around until everything is entirely settled, "'in case he can be of further use. "'And then our gentlemen will take him a long, long way away to... <sighs> pay him off. Perhaps later we will call the assassins in, just in case Mr. Pin has any clever ideas. Good point, although it does seem such a waste. The things one could do with Charlie. I told you it would not work. The man is a clown. I suppose you're right. Better something once and for all, then. I'm sure we understand one another. And now this meeting of the committee to unselect the patrician is declared closed. "'and hasn't happened.' "'Lord Veterinari by habit rose so early "'that bedtime was merely an excuse to change his clothes. "'He liked the time just before a winter's dawn. "'It was generally foggy, which made it hard to see the city, "'and for a few hours there was no sound but the occasional brief scream. "'But the tranquillity was broken this morning "'by a cry just outside the palace gates. "'Oi, Nari, that! "'He went to the window. "'Squid up head, oi!' The patrician walked back to his desk and rang the bell for his clerk, Drumnot, who was dispatched to the walls to investigate. "'It's the beggar known as foul old Ron, sir,' Drumnot reported five minutes later. "'Selling this paper full of things.' He held it between two fingers, as though expecting it to explode. Lord Vetinari took it and read through it. Then he read through it again. "'Well, well,' he said. "'The ank... Morpork Times. Was anyone else buying this? A number of people, my lord. People coming off the night shifts, market people, and so on. I see no mention of Hoinari Lap or Squidaped Oit. No, my lord. How very strange. Lord Vetinari read for a moment and said, <clears throat> Clear my appointments this morning, will you? I will see the Guild of Town Criers at nine o'clock and the Guild of Engravers at ten past. "'I wasn't aware they had appointments, sir.' "'They will have,' said Lord Vetinari. "'When they see this, they will have.' "'Well, well. "'I see fifty-six people were hurt in a tavern brawl.' "'That seems rather a lot, my lord.' "'It must be true, Drumnot,' said the patrician. "'It's in the paper. "'Oh, and send a message to that nice Mr. De Word, too. "'I will see him at nine-thirty. "'He ran his eye down the grey type again, "'And please also put out the word that I wish to see no harm coming to Mr. De Word, will you?' Drumnot, usually so adept in his understanding of his master's requirements, hesitated a moment. "'My lord, do you mean that you want no harm to come to Mr. De Word? 
or that you want no harm to come to Mr. De Word. Did you wink at me, Drumnot? No, sir. Drumnot, I believe it is the right of every citizen of Ankh-Morpork to walk the streets unmolested. Good God, sir, is it? Indeed. But I thought you were very much against movable type, sir. You said it would make printing too cheap and people would... Shinari lap! shouted the newspaper seller down by the gates. Are you poised for the exciting new millennium that lies before us, Drumnot? Are you ready to grasp the future with a willing hand? I don't know, my lord. Is special clothing required? The other lodgers were already at the breakfast table when William hurried down. He was hurrying because Mrs. Arcanum had views about people who were late for meals. Mrs. Arcanum, proprietress of Mrs. Eucrasia Arcanum's lodging house for respectable working men, was what Saccharissa was unconsciously training to be. She wasn't just respectable. She was respectable. It was a lifestyle, religion and hobby combined. She liked respectable people who were clean and decent. She used the phrase as if it was impossible to be one without being the other. She kept respectable beds and cooked cheap but respectable meals for her respectable lodgers, who, apart from William, were mostly middle-aged, unmarried and extremely sober. They were mainly craftsmen in small trades, and were almost all heavily built, well scrubbed, owned serious boots, and were clumsily polite at the dining table. Oddly enough, or at least oddly enough to William's expectations of people like Mrs. Arcanum, she wasn't averse to dwarfs and trolls, at least the clean and decent ones. Mrs. Arcanum rated decency above species. "'It says here fifty-six people were hurt in a brawl,' said Mr. Mackleduff who, by dint of being the longest surviving lodger, acted as a kind of president at mealtimes. He had bought a copy of the Times on his way home from the bakery, where he was night shift foreman. Fancy, said Mrs. Arcanum. I think it must have been five or six, said William. It says fifty-six here, said Mr. Mackleduff sternly, in black and white. It must be right, said Mrs. Arcanum to general agreement. Otherwise they wouldn't let them put it in. I wonder who's doing it said Mr. Prone, who travelled in wholesale boots and shoes. "'All oh, they be special people for doing this,' said Mr. Mackleduff. "'Really?' said William. "'Oh, yes,' said Mr. Mackleduff, who was one of those large men who were instantly expert on anything. "'They wouldn't allow just anyone to write what they like. That stands to reason.' So it was in a thoughtful mood that William made his way to the shed behind the bucket. Good Mountain looked up from the stone where he was carefully setting the type for a playbill. "'There's a spot of cash few over there,' he said, nodding to a bench. It was mostly in coppers. It was almost thirty dollars. William stared at it. "'This can't be right,' he whispered. "'Mr. Ron and his friends kept coming back for more,' said Good Mountain. "'But but it was only usual stuff,' said William. "'It wasn't even anything very important, just stuff that happened.' "'Ah, well, people like to know about stuff that happened,' said the dwarf. "'and I reckon we can sell three times as many tomorrow if we halve the price.' "'Halve the price?' "'People like to be in the know. "'Just a thought.' "'The dwarf grinned again. "'There's a young lady in the back room.' "'In the days when this place had been a laundry, "'back in the pre-rocking horse age, "'one area had been partitioned off with some cheap panelling to waist height "'to segregate the clerks and the person whose job it was "'to explain to customers where their socks had gone.' Saccharissa was sitting primly on a stool, clutching her handbag to her with her elbows close to her sides in order to expose herself to as little of the grime as possible. She gave him a nod. Now why had he asked her to come along? 
Oh, yes, she was sensible, more or less, and did her grandfather's books, and frankly, William didn't meet many literate people. He met the sort to whom a pen was a piece of difficult machinery. If she knew what an apostrophe was, he could put up with the fact that she acted as if she was living in a previous century. Is this your office now? she whispered. I suppose so. You didn't tell me about the dwarfs. Do you mind? Oh, no. Dwarfs are very law-abiding and respectable in my experience. William now realised that he was talking to a girl who had never been in certain streets when the bars were closing. I've already got two good items for you, Sacrissa went on, as if imparting state secrets. Er, uh, yes? My grandfather says this is the longest, coldest winter he can remember. Yes? Well, he's eighty. That's a long time. Oh, and the meeting of the Dolly Sisters' Baking and Flower Circle annual competition had to be abandoned last night because the cake table got knocked over. I found out all about it from the secretary, and I've written it all down neatly. Oh, um, is that really interesting, do you think? She handed him a page torn from a cheap exercise book. He read, The Dolly Sisters' Baking and Flower Circle annual competition was held in the reading room in Lobin Clout Street, Dolly Sisters. Mrs. H. Rivers was the president. She welcomed all members and commented on the sumptuous offerings. Prizes were awarded as follows. William ran his eye down the meticulous list of names and awards. Specimen in jar? he queried. Oh, that was the competition for dahlias, said Sacharissa. William carefully inserted the word dahlia after the word specimen and read on. A fine display of loose stool covers? Well... Oh, nothing. William carefully changed this to loose covers for stools, which was barely an improvement, and continued to read with the air of a jungle explorer who might expect any kind of exotic beast to spring out of the peaceful undergrowth. The story concluded. However, everyone's spirits were dampened when a naked man, hotly pursued by members of the watch, burst through the window and ran around the room, causing much disarray of the tarts before being apprehended by the trifles. The meeting closed at 9pm, Mrs. Rivers thanked all members. "'What do you think?' said Sacharissa, with just a hint of nervousness. "'You know,' said William, in a sort of distant voice, "'I think it is quite likely that it would be impossible to improve this piece in any way. Um, what would you say was the most important thing that happened at the meeting?' Her hand flew to her mouth in dismay. "'Oh, yes, I forgot to put that in. Mrs. Flatter won first prize for her sponge.' She's been runner-up for six years, too. William stared at the wall. Well done, he said. I should put that in if I was you. But you could drop in at the watch house in Dolly Sisters and ask about the naked man. I shall do no such thing. Respectable women don't have anything to do with the watch. I meant, ask why he was being chased, of course. But why should I do that? William tried to put words around a vague idea. "'People will want to know,' he said. "'But won't the watch mind me asking?' "'Well, they're our watch. I don't see why they should. "'And perhaps you could find some more really old people to ask about the weather. "'Who is the oldest inhabitant in the city?' "'I don't know. One of the wizards, I expect. "'Could you go to the university and ask him if he remembers it ever being colder than this?' "'Is this where youth put things in the paper?' said a voice at the doorway. It belonged to a small man with a beaming red face, one of those people blessed with the permanent expression of someone who has just heard a rather saucy joke. Only I grew this carrot, 
he went on. "'And I reckon it's grown into a very interesting shape, eh? "'What do you think, eh? "'Talk about a giggle, eh? "'I took it down the pub and everyone was killing themselves. "'They said I should put it in your paper.' "'He held it aloft. "'It was a very interesting shape. "'And William went a very interesting shade. "'That's a very strange carrot,' said Sacharissa, eyeing it critically. "'What do you think, Mr. DeWord?' At, 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 you go along to the university, why don't you, and I'll see to this uh, gentleman, said William, when he felt he could speak again. My wife couldn't stop laughing. What a lucky man you are, sir, said William solemnly. It's a shame you can't put pictures in your paper, eh? Yes, but I think I may be in enough trouble already, said William, opening his notebook. When the man and his hilarious vegetable had been dealt with, William wandered out into the printing shop. The dwarfs were talking in a group around a trap door in the floor. "'Pump's frozen again,' said Good Mountain. "'Can't mix up any more ink. "'Old Man Cheese says there used to be a well somewhere round here.' "'There was a shout from below. "'A couple of dwarfs descended the ladder. "'Mr. Good Mountain, can you think of any reason "'I should put this in the paper?' said William, "'handing him Sacharissa's report of the flowers and cookery meeting. "'It's a bit dull.' "'The dwarf read the copy. "'There's seventy-three reasons,' he said. "'That's cause there's seventy-three names.' "'I expect people like to see their names in the paper. "'But what about the naked man?' "'Yeah. Shame she didn't get his name.' "'There was another shout from below. "'Shall we have a look?' said Good Mountain. "'To William's complete lack of surprise, "'the little cellar under the shed was much better built than the shed itself. "'But then practically everywhere in Ankh-Morpork "'had cellars that were once the first or even second or third floors of ancient buildings, "'built at the time of one of the city's empires "'when men thought the future was going to last forever. "'And then the river had flooded,' and brought mud with it, and walls had gone higher, and now what Ankh-Morpork was built on was mostly Ankh-Morpork. People said that anyone with a good sense of direction and a pickaxe could cross the city underground by simply knocking holes in walls. Rusted tins and piles of timber rotted to tissue strength were piled up against one wall, and in the middle of the wall was a bricked-up doorway, the more recent bricks already looking worn and tatty compared to the ancient stone surrounding them. "'What's through there?' said Bodney. "'The old street, probably,' said William. "'The street has a cellar. What does it keep there?' "'Oh, when parts of the city get badly flooded, people just keep building on up,' said William. "'This was probably a ground-floor room once, you see. People just bricked up the doors and windows and built on another story. In some parts of the city, they say, there's six or seven levels underground, mostly full of mud, and that's choosing my words with care.' "'I'm looking for Mr. William de Word,' rumbled a voice above them. An enormous troll was blocking out the light from the cellar trapdoor. "'That's me,' said William. "'The patrician will see you now,' said the troll. "'I don't have an appointment with Lord Veterinari.' "'I will,' said the troll. "'You'd be amazed at how many people has appointments with the patrician and they don't know it. So you'd better hurry. I would hurry if I was you.' There was no sound but the ticking of the clock. William watched in apprehension as, apparently forgetting his presence, Lord Vetinari read his way through the times again. "'What a very interesting document,' said the patrician, suddenly laying it aside. "'But I'm forced to ask why.' "'It's just my news sheet,' said William. "'But bigger. Uh, people like to know things.' "'Which people?' "'Well, everyone, really. Do they? Did they tell you this?' William swallowed. "'Well, no, but you know I've been writing my newsletter for some time now.' 
"'For various foreign notables and similar people,' Lord Vetinari nodded. "'People who need to know. "'Knowing things is part of their profession. "'But you are selling this to anyone in the street, is that correct?' "'I suppose so, sir.' "'Interesting. "'Then you wouldn't entertain the idea, would you, "'that a state is, say, rather like one of those old rowing galleys, "'the ones which had banks of oarsmen down below, "'and a helmsman and so on above?' It is certainly in everyone's interest that the ship does not founder. But I put it to you, it is perhaps not in the interest of the rowers that they should know of every shoal avoided, every collision fended off. It would only serve to worry them and put them off their stroke. What the rowers need to know is how to row, hmm? And that the helmsman is a good one, said William. He couldn't stop the sentence. It said itself. It was out there, hanging in the air. Lord Vetinari gave him a stare that went on for several seconds beyond the necessary time. Then his face instantly broke into a broad smile. To be sure. And so they should, so they should. This is the age of words, after all. Fifty-six hurt in tavern brawl, eh? Astounding. What further news do you have for us, sir? Well, um, it's been very cold, has it? "'Has it indeed, my word?' "'On his desk the tiny iceberg bumped against the side of Lord Vetinari's inkwell. "'Yes, and there was a bit of a fracas at some cookery meeting last night. "'A fracas, eh? "'Well, probably more of a rumpus, really. "'Words resemble fish, in that some specialist ones can survive only in a kind of reef "'where their curious shapes and usages are protected from the hurly-burly of the open sea.' Rumpus and fracas are found only in certain newspapers in much the same way that beverages are found only in certain menus. They are never used in normal conversation. Well, probably more of a rumpus, really, and somebody has grown a funny-shaped vegetable. That's the stuff. What shape? A, uh, an amusing shape, sir. Could I give you a little bit of advice, Mr. De Word? Please do, sir. Be careful. People like to be told what they already know. Remember that. They get uncomfortable when you tell them new things. New things... Well, new things aren't what they expect. They like to know that, say, a dog will bite a man. That is what dogs do. They don't want to know that a man bites a dog because the world is not supposed to happen like that. In short, what people think they want is news but what they really crave is olds. I can see you've got the hang of it already. Yes, sir, said William, not at all sure he fully understood this, but certain that he didn't like the bit he did understand. I believe the Guild of Engravers has some things it wishes to discuss with Mr. Goodmountain, William, but I have always thought that we should go forward to the future. Yes, sir, quite hard to go any other way. Once again there was the too long stare, and then the sudden unfreezing of the face. Indeed. Good day, Mr. De Word. Oh, and do tread carefully. I'm sure you wouldn't want to become news, would you? William turned over the patrician's words as he walked back to Gleam Street, and it is not wise to be thinking too deeply when walking the streets of Ankh Morpork. He walked past Cutmere and Throat Dibbler with barely a nod, but in any case Mr. Dibbler was otherwise engaged. He had two customers. Two at once, unless one was daring another, was a great rarity. But these two were worrying him. 
they were inspecting the merchandise. C.M.O.T. Dibbler sold his buns and pies all around the city, even outside the Assassin's Guild. He was a good judge of people, especially when it involved judging when to step innocently round a corner and then run like hell, and he had just decided that he was really unlucky to be standing here, and also that it was too late. He didn't often meet killers. Murderers, yes, but murderers usually had some strange reason, and in any case generally murdered friends and relations. And he'd met plenty of assassins. But assassination had a certain style, and even certain rules. These men were killers. The big one, with the powdery streaks down his jacket and the smell of mothballs, was just a vicious thug, no problem there. But the small one with the lank hair had the smell of violent and spiteful death about him. You didn't often look into the eyes of someone who'd kill because it seemed like a good idea at the time. Moving his hands carefully, Dibbler opened the special section of his tray, the high-class one that contained sausages whose contents were one, meat, two, from a known four-footed creature, three, probably land-dwelling. "'Or may I recommend these gentlemen?' he said, and, because old habits died hard, he couldn't stop himself from adding, "'Finest pork!' "'Good, are they?' "'You'll never want to eat another, sir.' The other man said, "'About the other sort?' "'Pardon?' "'Oves and pig-snot and rats what fell in the ing-mincer.' "'What Mr. Tulip here means,' said Mr. Pin, "'is a more organic sausage.' "'Yeah,' said Mr. Tulip. "'I'm very ing-environmental like that.' "'Are you sure?' "'No, no, fine.' Dibbler raised a hand. The manner of the two men had changed. They were clearly very sure of everything. "'Well, you want a bad, a less good sausage, then, um, "'With ing-fingernails in it,' said Mr. Tulip. "'Well, uh, I do, I could,' Dibbler gave up. "'He was a salesman. "'You sold what you sold. "'Let me tell you about these sausages,' he went on, "'smoothly shifting an internal motor into reverse. "'When somebody chopped off his thumb in the abattoir, "'they didn't even stop the grinder. "'You probably won't find any rat in them "'cause rats don't go near the place. "'There's animals in there that... "'Well, you know how they say life began in some kind of big soup? "'Same with these sausages. "'If you want a bad sausage,' "'You won't get better than these.' "'You keep them for your special customers, do you?' said Mr. Pin. "'To me, sir, every customer is special. "'And you got mustard.' "'People call it mustard,' Dibbler began, getting carried away. "'But I call it—' "'I like ing mustard,' said Mr. Tulip. "'Really great mustard,' said Dibbler, not missing a beat. "'We'll take two,' said Mr. Pin. "'He did not reach for his wallet. "'On the house,' said Dibbler. He stunned two sausages, embunned them, and thrust them forward. Mr. Tulip took both of them and the mustard pot. "'Do you know what they called a sausage in a bun in Querm?' said Mr. Pin, as the two walked away. "'No,' said Mr. Tulip. "'They called it Le Sausage in Le Bun.' "'What? In a ing foreign language? You're ing-kidding!' "'I'm not a ing-kidder, Mr. Tulip.' "'I mean, they ought to call it a, a sausage dans la derriere.' said Mr. Tulip. He took a bite of his dibbly delight. Hey, that's what this ing thing tastes of, he added with his mouth full. In a bun, Mr. Tulip. I know what I meant. This is a ing-awful sausage. Dibbler watched them go. It wasn't often you heard language like that in Ankh-Morpork. Most people talked without leaving gaps in their sentences, and he wondered what the word ing meant. A crowd was gathered outside a large building in Welcome Soap, and the cart traffic was already backed up all the way to Broadway. And, thought William, 
Wherever a large crowd is gathered, someone ought to write down why. The reason in this case was clear. A man was standing on the flat's parapet just outside the fourth-storey window, back against the wall, staring downwards with a frozen expression. Far below, the crowd were trying to be helpful. It was not in the robust Ankh-Morpork nature to dissuade anyone in this position. It was a free city, after all. So was the advice. "'Much better to try the Thieves' Guild!' a man yelled. Six floors, then you're on good solid cobbles. Crack your skull, first go. There's proper flagstones round the palace, advised a man next to him. Well, certainly, said his immediate neighbour, but a patrician will kill him if he tries to jump from there, am I right? Well? Well, it's a question of style, isn't it? The Tower of Art's good, said a woman confidently. Nine hundred feet almost, and you get a good view. Granted, granted, but you also get a long time to think about things on the way down, I mean. Not a good time for introspection, in my view. "'Look, I've got a load of prawns on my wagon, "'and if I'm held up any longer, they're going to be walking home,' moaned a carter. "'Why doesn't he just jump?' "'He's thinking about it. It's a big step after all.' The man on the edge turned his head when he heard a shuffling noise. William was sidling along the ledge, trying hard not to look down. "'Morning. Come to try and talk me out of it, have you?' "'I—I—I—' William really tried not to look down. The ledge had looked a lot wider from below. He was regretting the whole thing. I wouldn't dream of it. I'm always open to being talked out of it. Yes, yes, er, uh, would you care to give me your name and address, said William. There was a hitherto unsuspected nasty breeze up here, gusting treacherously around the rooftops. It fluttered the pages of his nosebook. Why? Er, uh, because from this height onto solid ground it's often hard to find out that sort of thing afterwards, said William, trying not to breathe out too much. "'And if I'm going to put this in the paper, it'd look much better if I say who you were.' "'What paper?' William pulled a copy of the Times out of his pocket. It rattled in the wind as he wordlessly handed it over. The man sat down and read it, his lips moving, his legs dangling over the drop. "'So this is like things that happen,' he said. "'Like a town crier written down.' "'That's right. So, what was your name?' "'What do you mean, was?' "'Well, you know, obviously,' said William wretchedly, he waved his hand towards the void and almost lost his balance. If you... Arthur Crank. And where did you live, Arthur? Pratt or Alley. And what was your job? There you go with the was again. The watch usually give me a cup of tea, you know. A warning bell went off in William's head. You jump a lot, do you? Only the difficult bits. And they are? The climbing up bits. I don't do the actual jumping, obviously. That's not a skilled job. I'm more into the cry-for-help aspect. William tried to grip sheer wall. And the help you want is? Could you make it twenty dollars? Or you jump? Ah, oh, well, not exactly jump, obviously. Not the whole jump. Not as per such. But I shall continue to threaten to jump, if you get me drift. The building seemed a lot higher to William than it had done when he climbed the stairs. The people below were a lot smaller. He could make out faces looking up. Foul old Ron was there with his scabby dog and the rest of the crew because they had an uncanny gravitational attraction to impromptu street theatre. He could even make out Coffin Henry's will-threaten-for-food sign, and he could see the queues of wagons by now paralysing half the city. He could feel his knees buckling. Arthur grabbed him. "'Oi, this is my patch,' he said. "'Find your own spot.' "'You said that jumping off wasn't a skilled job,' said William, trying to concentrate on his notes as the world spun gently around him. "'What was your job, Mr Crank?' "'Steeplejack.' Arthur Crank, you come down here right this minute. Arthur looked down. Oh, God, they've gone and fetched the wife, he said. 
"'Constable Fiddyman here says you're—' The distant pink face of Mrs. Crank paused to listen again to the watchman standing next to her. "'Interfering with the mercantile well-being of the city, you old fool!' "'Can't argue with the wife,' said Arthur, giving William a sheepish look. "'I'll hide your trousers another time, you silly old man. You come down here, or I'll give you what for?' Three happy married years,' said Arthur cheerfully, waving at the distant figure. "'The other thirty-two haven't been too bad either. But she can't cook cabbage worth a damn.' "'Really?' said William and dreamily fell forward. He woke up lying on the ground, which was what he'd expected, but still in a three-dimensional shape, which he hadn't. He realised that he was not dead. One reason for this was the face of Corporal Nobbs of the Watch looking down at him. William considered that he had lived a relatively blameless life, and if he died he did not expect to encounter anything with a face like Corporal Nobbs, the worst thing ever to hit a uniform if you didn't count seagulls. "'Ah, you're all right,' said Nobbs, looking slightly disappointed. "'Feel faint?' William murmured. "'I could give you the kiss of life if you like,' said Nobbs. Unbidden by William, various muscles spasmed and jerked him vertical so fast that his feet momentarily left the ground. "'Much better now,' he shouted. "'Only we learnt it down a watch-house, and I haven't had a chance to try it yet. "'Fit as a fiddle,' William wailed. "'I've been practising on me hand and everything. Never felt better.' "'Old Arthur Crank's always doing that,' said the watchman. "'He's just after tobacco money. "'Still, everyone clapped when he carried you down.' It's amazing how he can still climb drain pipes like that. Is it really? William felt oddly empty. It was great when you were sick. I mean, from four stories up, it looked quite pretty. Someone ought to have taken a picture. Got to be going, William screamed. I must be going mad, he thought as he hurried towards Gleam Street. Why the hell did I do it? It wasn't as if it was my business. Except, come to think of it, it is now. Mr Tulip burped. "'What are we going to do now?' he said. Mr Pin had acquired a map of the city and was examining it closely. "'We are not your old-style bother-boys, Mr Tulip. "'We are thinking men. "'We learn, we learn fast.' "'What are we going to do now?' Mr Tulip repeated. "'Sooner or later he'd be able to catch up. "'We're going to buy ourselves a little insurance. "'That's what we're going to do. "'I don't like no lawyer having all that muck on us. "'Ah, here we are. "'It's the other side of the university.' "'We're going to buy some magic,' said Mr Tulip. "'Not exactly magic.' "'I thought you said this city was a ing pushover.' "'It has its good points, Mr Tulip.' Mr Tulip grinned. "'Ing right,' he said. "'I want to go back to the Museum of Antiquities.' "'Now, now, Mr Tulip. "'Business first, pleasure later,' said Mr Pin. "'I want to ing-see all of them.' "'Later on, later on. "'Can you wait twenty minutes without exploding?' The map led them to the Thaumatological Park, just hubwards of Unseen University. It was still so new that the modern flat-roofed buildings, winners of several awards from the Guild of Architects, hadn't even begun to let in water and shed window panes in a breeze. An attempt had been made to pretty up the immediate area with grass and trees, but since the site had been built partly on the old ground known as the Unreal Estate, this had not worked as planned. The area had been a dump for Unseen University for thousands of years, there was a lot more below that turf than old mutton bones, and magic leaks. On any map of thaumic pollution, the unreal estate would be the centre of some extremely concentric circles. Already the grass was multicoloured, and some of the trees had walked away. Nevertheless, several businesses were thriving there, products of what the Arch-Chancellor, or at least his speechwriter, had called 
A marriage between magic and modern business. After all, the modern world doesn't need very many magic rings and magic swords, but it does need some way to keep its appointments in order. A lot of garbage, really, but I suppose it makes everyone happy. Is it time for that lunch yet? One of the results of this joyful union was now on the counter in front of Mr. Pin. It, it's the Mark II, said the wizard, who was glad that there was a counter between him and Mr. Tulip. Yeah, cutting edge. That's good, said Mr. Tulip. We in love cutting edges. How does it work? said Mr. Pin. It's got contextual help, said the wizard. All you have to do is, and you open the lid. To the wizard's horror, a very thin knife appeared magically in his customer's hand and was used to release the catch. The lid sprang back. A small green imp sprang up. Bingly, bingly, bing! It froze. Even a creation of biothormic particles will hesitate when a knife is pressed to its throat. What the hell's this? said Mr. Pin. I said I want something that listens. It does listen, it, it does listen, said the wizard hurriedly. But it can say things too. Like what? Bingly, bingly? The imp gave a nervous laugh. Good for you, it said. You have wisely purchased the Disorganizer Mark II, the latest in biothaumaturgical design, with a host of useful features and no resemblance whatsoever to the Mark I, which you may have inadvertently destroyed by stamping on it heavily, it said, adding, This device is provided without warranty of any kind as to reliability, accuracy, existence or otherwise, or fitness for any particular purpose, and bioalchemic products specifically does not warrant, guarantee, imply or make any representations as to its merchantability for any particular purpose, and furthermore shall have no liability for or responsibility to you or any other person, entity or deity, with respect of any loss or damage whatsoever caused by this device or object, or by any attempts to destroy it by hammering it against a wall, or dropping it into a deep well, or any other means Whatsoever, and moreover asserts that you indicate your acceptance of this agreement or any other agreement that may be substituted at any time by coming within five miles of the product or observing it through large telescopes or by any other means because you are such an easily cowed moron who will happily accept arrogance and unilateral conditions on a piece of highly prized garbage that you would not dream of accepting on a bag of dog biscuits and is used solely at your own risk. The imp took a deep breath. May I introduce to you the rest of my wide range of interesting and amusing sounds, insert name here. Mr. Pin glanced at Mr. Tulip. All right. For example, I can go... Chala! No. An amusing bugle call? No. Ding! No. Or I can be instructed to make droll and diverted comments when performing various actions. Why? Er, uh, some people like us to say things like, I'll be back when you open the box again, or something like that. Why do you do noises? said Mr. Pin. People like noises. We don't, said Mr. Pin. We ing ate noises, said Mr. Tulip. Good for you. I can do lots of silence, the imp volunteered. But suicidal programming forced it to continue. And would you like a different colour scheme? What? What colour would you like me to be? As it spoke, one of the imp's long ears slowly turned purple and its nose became a vaguely disquieting shade of blue. We don't want any colours said Mr. Pin. We don't want noises. We don't want cheerfulness. We just want you to do what you're told. Perhaps you would like to take a moment to fill in your registration card, said the imp, desperately holding it up. A knife thrown at snake speed snapped the card out of its hand and nailed it to the desk. Or perhaps you would like to leave it till later. Your man here, Mr. Pin began. Where did he go? Mr. Tulip reached behind the counter and hauled up the wizard. 
Your man here says you're one of those imps that can repeat everything you hear, said Pin. Yes, insert name here, sir, said the imp. And you don't make stuff up. Oh, they can't, the wizard panted. They have no imagination at all. So if someone heard it, they'd know it was real. Yes, indeed. Sounds just the thing we're looking for, said Mr. Pin. And how will you be paying, said the wizard. Mr. Pin snapped his fingers. Mr. Tulip drew himself up and out, squared his shoulders and cracked knuckles that were like two bags of pink walnuts. Before we ing talk about paying, said Mr. Tulip, we want to talk to the bloke who wrote that ing warranty. What William now had to think of as his office had changed quite a lot. The old laundry fixings, dismembered rocking horses and other rubbish had been spirited away and two desks stood back to back in the middle of the floor. They were ancient and battered, and to stop them wobbling they needed, against all common sense, bits of folded cardboard under all four legs. "'I got them from the second-hand shop along the road,' said Sacharissa nervously. "'They weren't very expensive.' "'Yes, I can see that. Um, "'Miss Cripslock, I've been thinking, your grandfather can engrave a picture, can he?' "'Yes, of course.' "'Why have you got mud all over you?' "'And if we got an iconograph and learned how to use it to take pictures,' "'William went on, ignoring this, "'could he engrave the picture that the imp paints?' "'I suppose so.' "'And do you know any good iconographers in the city?' "'I could ask around. What happened to you?' "'Oh, there was a threatened suicide in Welcome Soap.' "'Any good?' "'Sacharissa looked startled at the sound of her own voice. "'I mean, obviously, I wouldn't wish anyone to die, "'but uh, we've got quite a lot of space.' "'I might be able to make something of it. "'He, er, uh, saved the life of the man who climbed up to talk him down.' "'How brave! "'Did you get the name of the man who climbed up after him?' "'Um, no. "'Er, uh, he was a mystery man,' said William. "'Oh, well, that's something. "'There's some people waiting to see you outside,' said Sacharissa. "'She glanced at her notes. "'There's a man who's lost his watch, "'a zombie who, well, I can't make out what he wants, "'there's a troll who wants a job,' "'and there's someone who's got a complaint "'about the story of the fight at the Mended Drum "'and wants to behead you. "'Oh, dear. "'All right, one at a time.' "'The watch-loser was easy. "'It was one of the new clockwork ones my father gave me,' "'said the man. "'I've been looking for it all week. "'It's not exactly... "'If you can put it in the paper that I have lost it, "'maybe someone who's found it will turn it in,' "'said the man, with unwarranted hopefulness. "'And I'll give you sixpence for your trouble.' Sixpence was sixpence. "'William made a few notes.' The zombie was more difficult. For a start he was grey, shading to green in places, and smelled very strongly of artificial hyacinth aftershave. Some of the more recent zombies, having realised that their chance of making friends in their new life would be greatly improved if they smelled of flowers rather than just smelled. "'People like to know about people who are dead,' he said. His name was Mr Bendy, and he pronounced it in a way that made it clear that the Mr was very much a part of the name. "'They do?' "'Yes,' said Mr. Bendy emphatically. "'Dead people can be very interesting. "'I expect people would be very interested in reading about dead people.' "'Do you mean obituaries?' "'Well, yes, I suppose they would be. "'I could write them in an interesting way.' "'All right. Twenty pence each, then.' Mr. Bendy nodded. It was clear that he would have done it for nothing. He handed William a wad of yellow, crackling paper. "'Here's an interesting one to start you off,' he said. "'Oh? Whose is it?' "'Mine. It's very interesting, especially the bit where I died.' The next man to come in was in fact a troll. 
Unusually for trolls who usually wore just enough to satisfy humanity's mysterious demands for decency, this one actually wore a suit. At least, it was largely tubes of cloth that covered his body, and suit was about the only word. Rocky, he mumbled, looking down. I'll take any job, Gov. What was your last job? said William. Boxer, Gov. But I wasn't happy with it. Kept getting knocked down. Can you write or take pictures? said William, wincing. No, Gov. I can do heavy lifting, and I can whistle tunes, Gov. That's a good talent, but I don't think we... The door flew open, and a thick-shouldered, leather-clad man burst in, flourishing an axe. You've got no right putting that about me in the paper, he said, waving the blade under William's nose. Who are you? I'm Breezok the Barbarian, and I... The brain works fast when it thinks it is about to be cut in half. Oh, if it's a complaint you have, you have to take it up with the complaints, beheadings, and horse-whippings editor, said William. Mr Rocky here. That's me, boomed Rocky cheerfully, laying a hand on the man's shoulder. There was only room for three of his fingers. Breezok sagged. I just want to say, said Breezok slowly, that you put in and I hit someone with a table. I never done that. What do people think of me if they heard I go round hitting people with tables? What did that do to my reputation? I see. I knifed him. A table's a sissy weapon. We shall certainly print a correction, said William, picking up his pencil. You couldn't add that I tore Slicer Gadley's ear off with my teeth, could you? That'd make people sit up. Ears aren't easy to do. When they had all gone, Rocky to sit on a chair outside the door, William and Sacharissa stared at one another. "'It's been a very strange morning,' he said. "'I found out about that winter,' said Sacharissa, "'and there was an unlicensed theft from a jewellery shop in the Artificers Street. "'They got quite a lot of silver. "'How did you find that out?' "'One of the journeyman jewellers told me.' Sacharissa gave a little cough. "'He, um, always comes to have a little chat with me when he sees me walking past.' "'Really? Well done. "'And while I was waiting for you, I had an idea. "'I got Gunilla to set this in type.' "'She shyly pushed a piece of paper across the desk. "'The Ankh Morpork Times. "'The truth shall make ye free. "'Extra.' "'It looks more impressive at the top of the page,' she said nervously. "'What do you think?' "'What are the fruit salads and leaves and things?' said William. "'Sacharissa blushed. "'I did that. A bit of unofficial engraving.' I thought it might make it look, you know, high-class and impressive. Uh, do you like it? It's very good, said William, hurriedly. Very nice, sir. Uh, cherries. Grapes. Ah, uh, yes, of course, I meant grapes. What's the quote from? It's very meaningful, without uh, meaning anything very much. I think it's just a quote, said Sacharissa. Mr Pin lit a cigarette and blew a stream of smoke into the still damp air of the wine cellar. Now... "'It seems to me that what we have got here is a failure to communicate,' he said. "'I mean, it's not like we're asking you to memorise a book or anything. "'You've just got to look at Mr Tulip here. "'Is this hard? "'Lots of people do it without any kind of special training.' "'I just sort of lose my bottle,' said Charlie. "'His feet clanked against several empty ones. "'Mr Tulip is not a scary man,' said Mr Pin. "'This was flying in the face of the current evidence, he had to admit.' His partner had bought a twist of what the dealer had sworn was devil dust, but which looked to Mr Pin very much like powdered copper sulphate, and this had apparently reacted with the chemicals from the slab which had been Mr Tulip's afternoon snack, and turned one of his sinuses into a small bag of electricity. 
His right eye was spinning slowly and sparks twinkled on his nasal hairs. I mean, does he look scary? Mr Pin went on. Remember, you are Lord Vetinari, understand? You're not going to take anything from some guard. If he talks back to you, just look at him. Like this, said Mr Tulip, half of his face flashing on and off. Charlie leapt back. Not quite like that, perhaps, said Mr Pin, but close. I don't want to do this any more, Charlie wailed. Ten thousand dollars, Charlie, said Mr Pin. That's a lot of money. I've heard of this veterinary, said Charlie. If this goes wrong, he'll have me thrown into the scorpion pit. Mr Pin spread his hands expansively. Well, the scorpion pit isn't as bad as it's cracked up to be, you know. It's a ing picnic compared to me, rumbled Mr Tulip, his nose lighting up. Charlie's eyes sought a way out. Unfortunately, one of them was cleverness. Mr Pin hated the sight of Charlie trying to be clever. It was like watching a dog try to play the trombone. I'm not doing it for ten thousand dollars, he said. I mean, you need me. He let it hang in the air, which was very much what Mr Pin was considering doing with Charlie. We had a deal, Charlie, he said mildly. Yeah, well, I reckon there's more money in this now, said Charlie. What do you think, Mr Tulip? Mr Tulip opened his mouth to reply, but sneezed instead. A thin bolt of lightning earthed itself on Charlie's chain. Maybe we could go to fifteen thousand, said Mr Pin. And that's coming out of our share, Charlie. Yeah, well, said Charlie. He was as far away from Mr Tulip as possible now, because the man's dry hair was standing out from his head. But we want to see some extra effort, right? said Mr Pin. Starting right now... All you have to do is say, what do you have to say? You're relieved of your post, my man, go away, said Charlie. Except we don't say it like that, do we, Charlie, said Mr Pin. It's an order. You are his boss, and you have to give him a haughty stare. Look, how can I put it? You're a shopkeeper. Imagine that he's asked for credit. It was six in the morning. Freezing fog held the city in its breathless grip. Through the mists they came, and into the press-room behind the bucket they lurched, and out into the mists they went again, on a variety of legs, crutches, and wheels. May Lord Vetinari heard the cry, and sent the overnight clerk down to the gate again. He noted the title. He smiled at the motto. He read the words. It is the coldest winter in living memory, and that is official. Dr. Fettel Dodgast, 132, of Unseen University, told the Times, It is as cold as I can remember. Mind you, we don't get the winter these days that we had when I was young. Icicles, as long as a man's arm, have been seen on gutters about the city, and many pumps have frozen. Dr. Dodgast, 132, says the winter is worse than the one in 1902 when wolves invaded the city. He added and we were glad of that because we hadn't seen fresh meat for a fortnight. Mr Josiah Wintler, 45, of 12B Martlebury Street, has humorous vegetable that he will exhibit to all comers upon payment of a small sum. It is most droll. Mr Clarence Harry, 39, begs to inform the public that he has lost a valuable watch, probably in the area of Dolly Sisters. Reward to finder... Please report to Times Office. 
a iconographer with their own equipment vanted by this publication. Apply at the Times office the sign of the bucket. A miscreant stole $200 worth of silver from H. Hogland and Son Jewellers of Nonsuch Street yesterday p.m. Mr. Hogland, 32, who was threatened at knife point, told the Times, I shall recognise the man if I should see him again, because not many people have a stocking on their head. And Lord Vetinari smiled. And someone knocked softly at the door, and he glanced at the clock. Come, he said. Nothing happened. After a few seconds, the soft knock came again. Come in. And there was the pregnant silence again. And Lord Vetinari touched an apparently ordinary part of his desk top. And a long drawer appeared, out of what had seemed to be the solid walnut of the desk, sliding forward as though on oil. It contained a number of slim devices on a bed of black velvet, and a description of any one of them would certainly involve the word sharp. And he chose one, held it casually by his side, crossed soundlessly towards the door and turned the handle, stepping back quickly in case of a sudden rush. No one pushed, and the door, yielding to an unevenness in the hinges, swung inwards. Mr. Mackleduff smoothed out the paper. It was already accepted by all around the breakfast table that, as the man who had bought the paper, he was not simply its owner, but, as it were, its priest, relaying its contents to the appreciative masses. "'It says here a man in Martlebury Street has grown a vegetable that's a funny shape,' he said. "'I should very much like to see that,' said Mrs. Arcanum. There was a choking noise from further down the table. "'Are you all right, Mr. Deward?' she added, as Mr. Prone thumped him on the back. "'Yes, yes, really,' gasped William. "'Sorry, some tea went down the wrong way.' "'There's good soil in that part of the city,' opined Mr. Cartwright, travelling seed salesman. William concentrated desperately on his toast, while over his head every news item was presented with the care and veneration of a blessed relic. "'Someone held up a shopkeeper at Knife Point,' Mr. Mackleduff went on. "'Soon we will not be safe in our beds,' said Mrs. Arcanum. "'I don't think this is the coldest winter for more than a hundred years, though,' said Mr. Cartwright. "'I'm sure that one we had ten years ago was worse. Hit my sail something cruel.' "'It's in the paper,' said Mr. Mackleduff, in the quiet voice of someone laying down an ace. "'It was a very strange obituary that you read out, too,' said Mrs. Arcanum. William nodded silently over his boiled egg. "'I'm sure it's not usual to talk about things someone's done since they died.' Mr. Longshaft, who was a dwarf and something in the jewellery business, helped himself to another slice of toast. "'I suppose it takes all sorts,' he said calmly. "'The city is getting rather crowded, though,' said Mr. Windling, who had some unspecified clerical job. "'Still, at least zombies are human. No offence meant, of course.' Mr. Longshaft smiled faintly as he buttered the toast, and William wondered why he always disliked people who said no offence meant. Maybe it was because they found it easier to say no offence meant than actually refrain from giving offence. "'Well, I suppose we shall have to move with the times,' said Mrs. Arcanum, "'and I hope that other poor man finds his watch.' In fact, Mr. Harry was waiting outside the office when William arrived. He grabbed William's hand and shook it. 
"'Amazing, sir, amazing,' he said. "'How did you do it? "'It must be magic. "'You put that notice in your paper, "'and when I got home, blow me down, "'if the watch wasn't in my other jacket. "'God's bless your paper,' say I.' "'Inside, Good Mountain gave William the news. "'The Times had sold eight hundred copies so far today. "'At five pence each, William's share came to sixteen dollars. "'In pennies, it came to quite a large heap on the desk. "'This is insane,' said William. "'All we did was write things down.' "'There is a bit of a problem, lad,' said Good Mountain. "'Are you going to want to do another one for tomorrow?' "'Good gods, I hope not.' "'Well, I've got a story for you,' said the dwarf glumly. "'I hear the Guild of Engravers are already setting up their own press. "'They've got a lot of money behind them, too. "'They could put us right out of business when it comes to general printing.' "'Can they do that?' "'Of course. They use presses anyway. "'Type isn't hard to make, especially when you've got a lot of engravers. "'They can do really good work.' "'To be honest, we didn't reckon they'd cotton on this soon. "'I'm amazed. "'Well, younger members of the Guild have seen the work coming out of Omnia and the Agatean Empire. "'Turns out they've been looking for a chance like this. "'I hear there was a special meeting last night, a few changes of officers. "'That must have been worth seeing. "'So if you could keep your paper going,' said the dwarf. "'I don't want all this money,' William wailed. "'Money causes problems.' "'We could sell the times cheaper,' said Saccharissa, giving him an odd look. "'We'd only make more money,' said William gloomily. "'We could—we could pay the street vendors more,' said Saccharissa. "'Tricky,' said Good Mountain. "'A body can only take so much turpentine.' "'Then we could at least make sure they get a good breakfast,' said Saccharissa. "'A big stew with named meat, perhaps. "'But I'm not even sure there is enough news to fill up.' William began and stopped. That wasn't the way it worked, was it? If it was in the paper, it was news. If it was news, it went in the paper. And if it was in the paper, it was news. And it was the truth. He remembered the breakfast table. They wouldn't let them put it in the paper if it wasn't true, would they? William wasn't a very political person, but he found himself using unfamiliar mental muscles when he thought about they. Some of them had to do with memory. "'We could employ more people to help us get the news,' said Saccharissa. "'And what about the news from other places? Pseudopolis and Quirm. We just have to talk to passengers getting off the coaches.' "'Dwarfs would like to hear what's been happening in Uberwald and Copperhead,' said Good Mountain, stroking his beard. "'It takes nearly a week for a coach to get there from here,' said William. "'So?' "'It's still news.' "'I suppose we couldn't use the clacks, could we?' said Saccharissa. "'The semaphore towers? Are you mad?' said William. "'That's really expensive.' "'Well, you were the one who was worried we had too much money.' There was a flash of light. William spun round. A thing occupied the doorway. There was a tripod. There was a pair of skinny black-clad legs behind it and a large black box on top of it. One black-clad arm extended out from behind the box and was holding a sort of small hod, which was smoking. "'Nice one,' said a voice from behind the box. "'The light was shining so good of the dwarf's helmet, I could not resist it. You wanted an iconographer? My name is Otto Hreek.' "'Oh, yes,' said Saccharissa. "'Are you any good?' "'I am a wizard in the dark room. I am experimenting all the time.' said Otto Treek. 
and I have all my own equipment, and also a keen and positive attitude. Sakarissa, hissed William urgently. We could probably start you at a dollar a day. Sakarissa! Yes, what? He's a vampire. I object most strongly, said the hidden Otto. It is such an easy assumption to believe that everyone with an Uberwald accent is a vampire, is it not? There are many thousands of people from Uberwald who are not vampires. William waved his hand aimlessly, trying to shrug off the embarrassment. All right, I'm sorry, but I am a vampire, as it happens, Otto went on. But if I had said, Hello, my cheeky cock sparrow mate, old boy by crikey, what would you have said then, eh? We'd have been completely taken in, said William. Anyway, your notice did say, wanted, so I thought it was, you know, affirmative action, said Otto. Also, I have this. A thin, blue-veined hand was held up, gripping a small twist of shiny black ribbon. Oh, you've signed the pledge, said Sacharissa. At the meeting-rooms in Abattoir's Lane, said Otto triumphantly, where I attend every week for our big sing-song on tea on a bun and wholesome conversation on themes of positive reinforcement keeping off the whole subject of bodily fluids by strict instruction. I am not any longer any stupid sucker. What do you think, Mr. Goodmountain? said William. Goodmountain scratched his nose. It's up to you, he said. If he tries nothing with my lads, he'll be looking for his legs. What's this pledge? It's the Uberwald Temperance Movement, said Sacharissa. A vampire signs up and forswears any human blood, Otto shuddered. We prefer the B-word, he said. The B-word, Sacharissa corrected herself. The movement is becoming very popular. They know it's the only chance they've got. Well, OK, said William. He was uneasy about vampires himself, but turning the newcomer down after all this would be like kicking a puppy. Do you mind setting up your stuff in the cellar? A cellar, said Otto. Top hole. First the dwarfs had come, William thought, as he went back to his desk. They'd been insulted because of their diligence and because of their height, but they had kept their heads down, which was not hard, as unkind people pointed out, and prospered. Then the trolls had come and they got on a little better, because people didn't throw as many stones at creatures seven feet tall who could throw rocks back. Then the zombies had come out of the casket, one or two werewolves had crept in under the door, the gnomes had integrated quickly, despite a bad start, because they were tough and even more dangerous to cross than a troll. At least a troll couldn't run up your trouser leg. There weren't that many species left. The vampires had never made it. They weren't sociable, even amongst themselves. They didn't think as a species. They were unpleasantly weird, and they sure as hell didn't have their own food shops. So now it was dawning on some of the brighter ones that the only way people would accept vampires was if they stopped being vampires. That was a large price to pay for social acceptability, but perhaps not so large as the one that involved having your head cut off and your ashes scattered on the river. A life of steak tartare wasn't too bad, if you compared it with a death of steak au naturel. In any case, anyone eating raw steak from an Ankh-Morpork slaughterhouse was embarking on a life of danger and excitement that should satisfy anyone. Uh, I think we'd like to see who we're employing, though, William said aloud.
End of CD 3